Welcome to The Lead. I am Jake Tapper, and this hour we are counting down to a historic liftoff. SpaceX will launch two NASA astronauts to the International Space Station, the first time a commercial aerospace company will carry humans into Earth's orbit ever. It has been almost a decade since the U.S. launched its own astronauts into space. We're still waiting for the final weather call to be made. Liftoff is currently scheduled for 4.33 p.m. East Coast time from Florida's Kennedy Space Center. It's all, of course, happening during this global COVID-19 pandemic. And so precautions have been taken. The two veteran astronauts, uh, Colonel Doug Hurley and Bob Benkin, have been in quarantine together since mid-March. It is anticipated that they will be together in space for another 210 days. The administrator of NASA, Jim Bridenstine, saying this launch is an opportunity to bring the nation together. Our country has been through a lot. But this is, this is a unique moment where all of America can take a, a moment and look at our country do something stunning again. We're going to bring you the launch to you live. Uh, but first, the coronavirus pandemic remains our top story. The number of deaths in the United States just shy of that horrific 100,000 milestone. At this moment, the number of lives lost stands at 99,783. A tragedy that did not have to happen, according to health experts, had the U.S. taken action sooner. And while the rate of deaths each day seems to thankfully be slowing, the number of new cases of infection reported each day has remained fairly flat in the last two weeks. And as the nation reopens, Dr. Anthony Fauci is cautioning folks today to continue to wear masks and to practice social distancing, noting the effects of states reopening will not be seen for weeks. Fauci asserted today that the nation is confronting a choice, telling CNN the U.S. does not have to see a second wave. It could happen, but it is not inevitable. If we do the kinds of things that we're putting in place now to have the workforce, the system, and the will to do the kinds of things that are the clear and effective identification, isolation, and contact tracing, we can prevent this second wave that we're talking about if we do it correctly. If we do it correctly, Dr. Fauci said, and note that health experts say that we are not yet doing it correctly, that testing is getting better. But health experts say the U.S. still does not have the kind of national surveillance testing and contact tracing that we need. Today, Dr. Fauci re reiterated that the U.S. is far from defeating the deadly virus and every American has an important role to play, as CNN's Jason Carroll reports. The death toll in the United States is edging even closer to 100,000 lives lost. The sobering impact of that figure made clear on the cover of USA Today, which put a face to the pandemic. A new study today showing the number of people dying each day in the U.S. since April is 10 percent higher than in previous years. As the nation's top infectious disease doctor tells CNN, things could get better. The CDC is putting more of a workforce out there to help us do the kinds of identification, isolation, and contact tracing. I feel better and better that we're capable of doing that. But Dr. Anthony Fauci says continuing social distancing and wearing masks are also part of the solution. I want to make it be a symbol for people to see that that's the kind of thing you should be doing. It's sort of respect for another person and have that other person respect you. 14 states are seeing daily increases of new cases, several of those in the South. And it certainly should serve as a warning to all of us that this disease is not disappearing. 
Today, the nation's capital becoming the latest major city to announce its reopening. Starting Friday, barbershops, hair salons and outdoor restaurant dining all allowed, but with a warning. Moving into phase one uh, means that more people can get infected. Every single one of us has a role to play in protecting ourselves and each other. In Florida, Disney World and some of the surrounding theme parks announced they hope to reopen to the public in July, but still, Mickey Mouse has some rules. All of our cast members on our social distancing squad understand the policy and, and are encouraging and persuading guests to ensure that they keep their masks on at all times. While in hard-hit Miami-Dade County, the beaches and hotels will welcome people again starting Monday with some restrictions. Restaurants on South Beach's famed Ocean Drive already opened their doors today. On the other side of the coast, some retail businesses, churches and pools can reopen in California, again with limitations and a word of caution. Uh, we still haven't gotten through the first wave. Back in New York, the epicenter of the pandemic, the numbers continue trending in the right direction. Long Island, just outside New York City, has begun phase one of reopening with some construction, manufacturing and curbside retail. Uh, we're pleased with the progress that we're making in New York and we're ready to go to the next phase, open a new chapter. And a new look tonight at New York's famous Times Square, which will go dark for just one minute as a symbol that local restaurants and businesses need more help to survive the crisis. And Jake, late this afternoon, another major announcement coming from MGM Resorts about some of their key properties in Las Vegas, the Bellagio, the Hotel New York, New York, as well as the MGM Grand will all be reopening June 4th. That's next Thursday. There'll be some restrictions going forward. Employees will have to have temperature checks. Employees will also have to wear masks. But as for customers, they will be encouraging them to wear masks, but not requiring them to do so. Jake. All right, Jason Carroll in New York for us. Thank you so much. Joining me now is Dr. Peter Hotez. He's co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. Dr. Hotez, thanks so much for joining us. Um, so first, let me just start. You, you heard Dr. Fauci there saying that masks should be worn in public whenever possible. It's a sign of respect for other people. What's your reaction as a physician when you see politicians, including President Trump, setting the exact opposite example, not wearing masks and even mocking those who do wear masks? Does that concern you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you want to get out of this situation where whether or not you wear a mask depends on your political affiliation. That's a bad precedent to set, right? Because the virus couldn't care less if you're a Republican or Democrat or, or something else. So uh, I worry that it sets a precedent that somehow whether or not you wear a mask is related to political allegiance. And it can't work that way. We, we have to have masks, especially in the absence of a vaccine, we, we don't have a lot of tools in our disposal. One of them is wearing a mask to prevent you in case you have asymptomatic COVID from transmitting it from one person to another. So, you know, yes, it's it is a sign of respect for your fellow human being. I, I like to use the word love. It's a it's a sign of love of your of humankind and your fellow fellow uh, uh, colleagues or or people that you interact with that you're as a courtesy you're giving them that chance that in case you do have asymptomatic COVID, you're not transmitting it. And that needs to be uh, drummed in over and over again, because, again, we don't have a lot of uh, tools at our disposal. 
Uh, new research today showed that the cumulative number of people being hospitalized from coronavirus dropped in Colorado and Minnesota, Ohio and Virginia after statewide stay-at-home orders went into effect. Uh, we keep hearing concerns about a second wave or peak or surge as we head into the fall and the winter and as states start to reopen. How can we best prevent a second wave, a, a second peak from happening? So so here's the problem with with as we're starting to open up the country, and I understand why we're doing it, but it's not as if you open things up and then you see a little more the next day, a little more the day after that. You do not see that what we call a linear increase, a straight slope in the number of cases going up. What happens is it stays flat, it stays flat, it stays flat. Uh, you get this sense of complacency. You say, hey, this is looking pretty good. It looks like COVID's not going to come back. And then you get a very steep rise. It's what we call an exponential curve. It goes flat and then it goes up very steeply. This is what we saw in New York. The, if you remember in New York City, the virus got introduced probably in the first week of uh, February. Everything looked good for a long time until it wasn't, until you started to see a big pileup of patients in near intensive care units and hospitals. And that's the problem is, is the fact that uh, if you, there is going to be a problem, you won't see it for weeks and then it's going to be too late. So what we have to do other than the things we've been talking about, uh, stepping up contact tracing, which we're not doing at the level we need to do yet. Same with the testing. We also need to implement a system of syndromic surveillance in all of our major cities, uh, an app-based system where and tied to an alert system where we could see blips or increases in the number of people uh, getting sick. Because if you just, re we are re we've already learned, just relying on testing alone we're, we're more likely not to miss it. So that's a big piece that's missing. It's an engineering solution. We need to bring in some of our best engineers in the country and design a system either by, either by different states or, or nationally. Why aren't we? I mean, I know you're not the president of the United States. It's not your charge. But just as, as, a, as a top physician in this country, I just find it so curious. For the last two months, health officials ranging from Fauci to Burks to others have been talking about the need for widespread national surveillance testing uh, and contact tracing, the kind that, frankly, they enjoy uh, at the White House uh, to keep them safe, to keep President Trump safe. Uh, and yet uh, camps are opening up. Uh, people are talking about having concerts again. Schools, obviously, in several months, schools are going to start to reopen. And we're not there as a nation. And I don't know that we're ever actually even trying to get there as a nation. Why not? What's your sense as to what the reluctance is of the federal government to have the governors initiate and, and uh, oversee the kind of testing and contact tracing that, that we need in order to stay safe. And, and that system of syndromic surveillance. Why, you know, we're not getting the guidance. It's all being done, uh, you know, at individual cities, individual states in some cases. A lot of towns and cities are starting to implement it. But it's sort of, uh, you know, all these one-off things rather than uh, a national plan uh, and, and an alert level. And I don't understand it because, you know, you can open up the economy, but how are you going to, how can you sustain economic development if we have a relapse, if we start seeing multiple cities across the country later this summer or fall start looking like what we saw in New York City in the spring? It will, uh, the second wave, and others have said this, including Dr. Fauci, the second wave could be much worse than the first wave and the impact will be absolutely devastating. And, and we don't have to do that. You know, we have the, the greatest engineers, scientists, 
uh, in the world and, and the greatest research institutes and universities and the CDC has been the envy of the world for so long. I don't understand why we don't have this coordinated campaign in place to, to, to prevent the worst from happening. And we all saw the massive crowds, uh, many of them without masks over the weekend at, at uh, pool parties and beaches on boardwalks. Um, here's what Dr. Fauci had to say about some of those images. Take a listen. When you see some of the scenes that were shown just now, that's very troubling because that's inviting there to be an issue. I mean, we are going to see upticks of cases even under the best of circumstances. But don't start leapfrogging over some of the recommendations and the guidelines because that's really tempting fate and asking for trouble. Is that what you think is going on in, in, in some areas of the country, tempting fate, uh, asking for trouble? Yeah, no question. We know what happens when we see large gatherings. Uh, this is where the virus flourishes. And again, it's, it, you know, I don't know what happened in that particular uh, part, part of the country, whether there was an absence of leadership or failure to communicate. But we're, you know, we're unfortunately by opening up the economy and starting lifting some of the social distancing, somehow too many people have gotten the word saying, OK, we're done. Uh, it was a really bad spring, but now things are looking up and uh, we don't have to worry as much. And and, uh, and, and we know that's not true. Uh, we, we have two problems. The one problem is uh, a lot of the models indicate a big uh, return wave around, the, around winter, January, February. Uh, we could see a big spike in the number of cases. But in between now and then, uh, especially in the weeks before the election, we could see a big rise because of premature social distancing. So for a lot of states, the models coming out of IHME, the Institute for Health Metrics, and, and Washington and elsewhere have said we need to maintain aggressive social distancing to the end of May or even into the middle of June. And not many governors were willing to do that. And again, I understand it. But what we didn't do is put in the belts and suspenders the, the health system in place uh, that we need to do it safely. And, and I worry that we're going to pay for it. We may get lucky. The only way we can get lucky is if the effects of humidity and intense heat and sunlight are, are, are much greater than we currently understand. But we don't have evidence for that, and I think it would be very reckless to count on that. Um, Dr. Fauci reiterated his belief today that a, that a vaccine could be ready to go by the end of the year uh, without sacrificing scientific integrity or safety. Uh, do you think that uh, a vaccine could be ready to be deployed uh, December, January? You know, I, uh, I've, I've worked with Dr. Fauci my entire life, my 40 years since I began my MD-PhD. He's my, he's my mentor and, uh, in, and my role model. So you never want to disagree. One of the things you learn in, in, during that time is you never want to disagree with Tony because you'll be wrong. But I don't see a path <laughs> by which we can have that vaccine ready uh, by the end of the year. Look, the phase three clinical, the first set of phase three clinical trials are going to start uh, probably in July or August. It's going to take a year to collect all of the uh, safety information that you need uh, and the efficacy uh, data, the data that shows it actually works before you can actually license a, a vaccine. Uh, that that's what the science ordinarily would tell us. So I don't see a path how we could have, and and even that would be uh, a record. That would be a, a, the world record right then and there if we had something by the third quarter of 2021. So I don't see a path, but 
by which we can have it uh, by the end of the year. You can certainly have some vaccine manufactured, or what Dr. Fauci says, manufactured at risk, meaning that you may have to mm-hmm. throw it away if it doesn't work. And I think the other thing to remember, too, is the first mm-hmm. round of candidates, from what we're seeing with the neutralizing antibody titers, may only be partially protective anyway. So we'll probably see the vaccines that follow uh, might have a higher level of protection and can actually create that level of herd immunity that we might need. Let's hope that happens as soon as possible. Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. This programming note for parents, the Sesame Street crew returns to CNN for a new family town hall about COVID-19 and staying safe this summer. The ABCs of COVID-19, that's Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern, only on CNN. We're waiting for the final weather call for the historic SpaceX launch. The latest discussions not sounding positive for a launch today. Let's go straight to CNN's Rachel Crane, who's live for us at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Rachel, uh, give us the update. What's happening right now? Well, Jake, I'm sad to deliver the news that today's launch has officially been scrubbed due to weather. Uh, Just 16 minutes and 23 seconds before the scheduled liftoff at 4.33 Eastern time here at Kennedy Space Center. Now, a backup window um, is planned for May 30th, that Saturday, and a backup to the backup because these weather situations and launches, they're very precarious. That is scheduled for May 31st. But of course, today was an instantaneous launch window. Unfortunately, uh, Mother Nature was not on our side. Um, But now Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley, the two astronauts that are strapped into that crew capsule right now they will be taken off off the rocket uh and they will you know wait wait a few more days along with the rest of us uh for this historic launch jake and rachel this is the first time that spacex and and nasa have teamed up um not only of course does that mean brand new spacecraft but new space suits a new way of transporting the astronauts uh to the launch pad i know it's not going to happen today but just tell us a little bit more about that because perhaps it will happen uh may 30th Fingers crossed it happens on May 30th, Jake. And yes, this is the first time that NASA and SpaceX have teamed up for a a crewed launch like this. And if it's to be successful, SpaceX will join uh, the ranks of governments in becoming the first commercial company to put astronauts into orbit. Now, the capsule itself, you know, it's got a pretty futuristic look and feel to it, almost like a Tesla. Instead of the over 2,000 switches and knobs of the shuttle, you know, they have touchscreens. And the spacesuits, they're custom fit for the astronauts. Uh, Bob and Doug actually weighed in on the design of those spacesuits. They're very sleek looking. Uh, they, uh, they also have, you know, touchscreen compatible gloves, of course, because they need to be able to use those touchscreens themselves. And it's a capsule design, unlike the shuttle, which, of course, was designed to, to you know, glide and land on a, a runway. Uh, the Crew Dragon is designed to splash down into the ocean via parachutes. So, you know, hearkening back, de- back to the Apollo era of those gumdrops, uh, shaped shaped capsules. Uh, gone are the days of, of the plane-shaped shuttles. Jake? All right, Rachel, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, CNN meteorologist Tom Sater joins me now to discuss uh, the reason for SpaceX NASA launch being scrubbed today. Uh, Tom, it, it looked windy and cloudy uh, when I watched some of Rachel's uh, live shots uh, earlier today. Uh, what's going right. on in Florida? Well, it's interesting because it did look like there was going to be a pretty good window. At 2 p.m., we had a line of thunderstorms, Jake, that stretched the entire state from Jacksonville all the way down to Miami. That was at 2 p.m. And if the timing was right and that line moved off the eastern shore, we would have a window. 
The radar shows that happening. So if we take a look, you'll see the line moving offshore. Back behind it, the storms are widely scattered. You'll see one develop near Orlando and just to the west. That's on a trajectory to move north of Titusville. Down at the bottom of the screen, there's another thunderstorm east of Fort Meade, which is still gathering some strength, looks far enough away for the timing not to bother it. Now, the 45th Space Wing, uh, the forecaster is in, in charge of really looking at this in, in, in a go or no situation, just before the 4 p.m. hour, put out a status of red. That's a code saying weather is just too harsh, it's too severe to permit a liftoff. The thinking could be this. It's not the winds at Cape Canaveral. They will not permit a liftoff if the winds are greater than 30 miles an hour, and that has to be up to a height of about 162 feet. Now, yes, there, are cloud co there is cloud cover in the area, and the storms are widely scattered back behind it, even with some clearing. It could be because the storms, the line that moved through, have grown to great heights that there are anvil tops that are creating lightning. There have been reports of lightning in the area 10, even 20 miles. But if you have a liftoff of this Falcon 9 into the sky, and it could possibly a, a, attract a, a lightning strike from one of the top of these anvils, that could be a concern. I mean, it's always better to be safe than sorry. But what a day. Uh, they've been watching an area of low pressure, the meteorologists at NASA and SpaceX, for days. It's been soaking Florida, record rainfall, and it's been taking its time moving up the East Coast. At 8 a.m. this morning, it made landfall as a tropical storm named Bertha one hour before landfall. At 8 a.m. it was named 9 a.m. landfall. But because it was taking so many days to move up the coast of Florida, it's the dominant feature in the environment. So the circulation pattern is so broad, it's been carrying that moisture now from the southwestern part of Florida across Cape Canaveral and to the east. So we'll have to wait to see exactly what they're saying is the problem or the, 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 the belief of why they're going to give this a, a no-go today uh, and, and delay it. Could be the thunderstorms off the shoreline, the high cloud tops, the lightning associated with it, uh, and again, maybe the cloud cover. Uh, other than that, if they could have waited just another hour or two, uh, they would have even had a better chance. It looks as the storms become more widely scattered areas to the west. Jake. Okay, so they're, they're delayed, but uh, hopefully it will happen in the, in the coming days. Tom Sater, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate it. Um, so bad news, yeah. the NASA SpaceX mission uh, has been scrubbed for today, uh, but they're hoping for May 30th. Uh, coming up, President Trump lashing out, uh, apparently trying to distract from the horrific coronavirus death toll in the United States. His latest targets. Next. Breaking and disappointing news, the historic launch of the SpaceX and NASA spacecraft was scrubbed just minutes ago because of weather concerns. The mission was scheduled for just about 10 minutes from now. CNN's Rachel Crane is live for us at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And Rachel, um, this is going to be pushed to the weekend now, right? Yes, that's correct, Jake. Today was an instantaneous window. Uh, I was supposed to be taking off just, you know, a couple a couple minutes from now at 4.33 Eastern Standard Time. That launch window has been pushed to Saturday at 3.22 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here at the Kennedy Space Center. And right now, they're basically going through all of the measures that they had to take to get to this point, but in reverse. Um, so, you know, they're, they're bringing back the crew arm. They are, uh, the propellant obviously stopped and they are now removing the pressure from the fuel. Uh, that's a 40 minute process. You know, people will come back to the pad to help the astronauts, Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley, uh, 
unfortunately come out of their seats. Uh, but, you know, there will be another launch opportunity on uh, May uh, 30th, a backup to the backup on May 31st, because as we've seen today, these rocket launches are very precari precarious and they are at the mercy of Mother Nature. But, you know, Jake, I just want to point out one thing that had there been some kind of issue at the pad, there there's a end-to-end -end abort system here. It's called the launch escape, escape system. So had there been, you know, some catastrophe, had the rocket been exploding, there would have been rockets actually on the capsule, eight Super Draco engines, they call them, that would have been able to propel the rocket away, uh, the capsule away from the rocket, rather. So a lot of, uh, a lot of pro safety protocols built into the rocket and, of course, built into just monitoring, monitoring the weather and making sure Mother Nature is on our side. Jake? And, and Rachel, I, I know there are a lot of people out there, uh, it might have occurred to them that Florida has rather unpredictable weather and they don't know why Kennedy Space Center would have been built in Florida. My understanding, and please fact check me here, is that first of all, the vessel needs to fly east so as to benefit from the, the spin of the earth, the rotation of the earth, and they, don't, they wanted it flying over the ocean, not over uh, land where people could be. And also, uh, they wanted uh, the Kennedy Space Center to be built as... Uh, close to the equator as possible in, in the U.S. So that's why Florida was picked. Do I have my facts right there? You do indeed, Jake. You're, you, I think you've got a little bit of space nerd in you, if you know all of that. Uh, but, you know, all of those things that you just pointed out, the reason why, you know, this, uh, the Space Coast and Kennedy Space Center is placed here um, doesn't necessarily align with Mother Nature. So there's a lot of reasons why it's here, but unfortunately it, there's a lot of lightning, a lot of precarious weather. So, you know, you've you got to weigh your options. Right. Rachel, thank you so much. Appreciate your reporting. President Trump is in Florida. Earlier today, he toured NASA facilities. He was set to watch the launch today. CNN's Caitlin Collins joins me now from the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, Caitlin, I know you're disappointed. This was supposed to be a big moment, uh, especially for the nation uh, that could really use uh, some uplift right now. Yeah, they were hoping this was going to mark this next chapter in American spaceflight here. And the Trump administration was hoping to shepherd that in. And now, of course, it's been put on hold for potentially a few more days while the president is still here at the Kennedy Space Center. We're not exactly sure where he is right now, but the reporters traveling with him had just been taken to the observation deck where they were going to be watching this launch that we were hoping was going to happen any moment now. And now that has been scrapped and pushed to Saturday, and it's raising questions about whether the president is going to return to Florida for that next attempt. President Trump was on his way to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida today when the first scheduled launch from American soil was abruptly scrapped. The SpaceX rocket was scheduled to take off at 4.33 p.m. Eastern, but the moment that hasn't happened in nearly a decade all came down to the weather. Vice President Mike Pence was also on hand, highlighting a Trump administration priority to revitalize the U.S. space program. Before he left Washington, the president lashed out at Twitter after the social media company slapped fact checks on his tweets about mail-in voting. Twitter added a blue link to get the facts about mail-in ballots after Trump claimed without evidence that they would cause substantial election fraud. In response, Trump threatened to strongly regulate or close down social media platforms that he claims are silencing conservatives. We saw what they attempted to do and failed in 2016. We can't let a more sophisticated version of that happen again. For years, Twitter has been criticized for allowing some world leaders to spread misinformation unchecked. 
But Trump and his aides say he's being unfairly targeted. Relying upon the same people who attack him all day long to, quote, fact check him. The president responded by repeating his claims about mail-in voting and also continued to promote a baseless murder conspiracy about the anchor, Joe Scarborough. Liz Cheney, one of the top House Republicans, said the president needs to stop. He's the commander-in-chief of this nation, and it's causing great pain to the family of the young woman who died. So I would urge him to stop it. The Wall Street Journal editorial board echoed that criticism and said Trump was smearing Scarborough and said he was debasing his office and hurting the country in doing so. Now, Jake, the president is still here at the Kennedy Space Center. It was going to be a family affair with the first lady here. Most of his children, if not all of them, are also here. And he was going to give a speech right here behind me if that launch had gone forward. Now we're waiting to see if he's going to make any remarks at all before returning to Washington tonight. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Just minutes ago, President Trump weighed in on the death of an African-American man who pleaded he could not breathe while pinned to the ground by a Minnesota police officer. Stay with us. Internationally today, the family of George Floyd says that they want the four police officers involved in his death charged with murder. And just moments ago, President Trump weighed in. A very sad event. A very, very sad, sad event. We're going to look at it and we're going to get a report tomorrow when we get back. And we're going to get a very full report, but a very sad day. Floyd is the man seen in cell phone video from Minneapolis repeatedly telling an officer that he could not breathe as that officer kept Floyd pinned down by his neck. Here's a portion of that video. It's a warning here that I want to give you. You might find this disturbing if you have not seen it. If you have any children, you might want to change the channel or turn away for just a few, a few seconds. Well, you got him down, man. Let him breathe, least man. I can breathe. I've been trying to hear about Floyd died after that encounter Monday night. The four officers involved were fired from the Minneapolis Police Department. CNN's Sarah Seidner is in Minneapolis. And Sarah, police initially said Floyd was resisting arrest, arrest, but Floyd's family says surveillance video from a restaurant nearby disproves that claim. They're right. If you look at just the videos that we've all been able to see, both us in the media and the public, uh, many of them taken from bystanders, but also this surveillance video that we'd like to show you ourselves uh, from a store you can see what happens there. And there's no indication that he was resisting arrest. In fact, you see him sort of slide down and sit on the ground. His hands uh, are cuffed behind him. Uh, and then the officer helps him up at the and same time. They kill brown and so all the time. here's the thing. And, best, and, and look, Fuck the police. The, They're coming straight from the underground. They got it back because they're young, black, and they blind. So you can hear the pain. You can hear the grief here. And that pain and grief and frustration with seeing this happen to yet another black person in this country has boiled over into anger. Uh, What you're seeing where we're standing right now, Jake, is this is the third precinct here in Minneapolis. Police department is there. If you look on the top of the department, you will see officers standing there. Uh, They are holding uh, guns that basically fire 
tear gas. Um, and at times they have pointed it directly at people in the crowd uh, when they think that they're trying to get through a barricade that leads into the parking lot there. Uh, you also will see a bunch of folks with their hands up. This is an old chant that has really taken hold since the case of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Hands up, don't shoot. But you're also hearing new things from this crowd. You are seeing people that are most of them are masked, but there are quite a few people who are not masked. And you're hearing people say, the virus is not as dangerous as the police or that police are the virus. That is a new chant that you're hearing as coronavirus has taken hold. There is a lot, as I said, of pain here, Jake. Uh, people very frustrated uh, with what happened. However, we do know that four of the officers have been fired. Uh, the officer, of course, there with his uh, knee on the neck uh, of George Floyd uh, has a representative that no one has talked about this from their perspective. Uh, and we have not yet seen their body cam video. And that's video uh, that no one has yet seen and has not yet been released. But from the videos that we can see, from what we've been able to see that is available now, it does not appear that he was actually resisting arrest, Jake. And initially, uh, the police union cautioned the public, saying don't rush to judgment on these officers involved. Uh, what are they saying today? Yeah, so what you're actually hearing from different organizations, uh, including actually the mayor of Minneapolis, is that he says that the county attorney, the Hennepin County attorney, needs to prosecute the officer that you see there with his knee on Floyd's neck. Uh, and you're hearing that directly from the mayor. You're also hearing from the, the major cities' chiefs association who's saying they do not believe that these officers actually followed proper procedure uh, in this particular case. The family, by the way, Jake, is asking for murder charges, saying that is exactly what happened to their son, brother, and father. Jake? Sarah Seidner in Minneapolis for us. Thank you so much. Coming up. There's been some optimism in the search for a coronavirus vaccine, but has this optimism be, been overhyped? We'll dig into that next. Stay with us. Dr. Anthony Fauci in an interview with CNN today reiterating his hope that the U.S. will have a viable vaccine ready to go by the end of the year, if uh, December or January, uh, without sacrificing safety or scientific integrity. Uh, joining me now to discuss is CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, uh, you've done a very uh, extensive report on what some feel is an overhyped level of optimism about the prospect for a vaccine. Obviously, we all want a vaccine to be discovered and working by tomorrow. Uh, what have you found? So, Jake, we've talked about how this effort to get a vaccine is a marathon, not a sprint. And some of the ethicists and infectious disease experts that I've been talking to feel a bit like somebody, a runner, is jumping up and down after five miles and saying, look how well I did when they have 21 miles left to go. For example, press releases about animal data, press releases about data in humans, but only a very small number of people. But eventually, this needs to be tested out in thousands, if not tens of thousands. One vaccine in particular has come under fire from the people I've been talking to. That's the University of Oxford, one of their lead researchers telling me that they will be the first ones with the vaccine. He was definitive about that. He said that he was 80 percent sure they would be successful. He then had to walk that back. But concerns that that vaccine, that group in particular, has been a little bit too over-exuberant, some even saying that they put a spin on their monkey data to make it look much more positive than it really was. They, they deny that.
Elizabeth, obviously, these are these are desperate times. People want good news. Well, what is the typical process of testing a vaccine uh, and putting it through the approval process? So first, what you do is you develop your vaccine, you test it out on animals to see that it's safe and to see what kind of immune reaction you get in the animals. And then you move on to small numbers of people. We're talking dozens or hundreds of people. This is in phases one and two to make sure, A, that it's safe and B, that people are producing neutralizing antibodies. And then you move on to phase three. That's the tough one. You're vaccinating thousands or tens of thousands of people. You then let them go live their lives and you see if they're less likely to get COVID than people who you vaccinated with a placebo or with a different kind of vaccine. And that's the tough part. That's when, you know, sometimes there are vaccines that get to phase three, but don't actually make it onto the market. Now, as we heard Dr. Fauci say, he says, we're not going to, we're going to do this faster, but we're not going to sacrifice safety or efficacy. Instead, what we're going to do is something unusual, which is while we're studying it, we're also going to have several companies produce their vaccine. Some of them won't work and we will have wasted that money and that vaccine will sit on warehouse shelves. But for the ones or one that does work, then we'll have it ready. All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Uh, with me to discuss is Dr. Dan Baruch. He's Director of Vaccine Research at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Baruch, we should point out you're working on uh, one of the vaccines uh, in contention here with Johnson & Johnson. Do you think enough of the data has been released by the vaccine companies? Well, thanks, Jake. I think that it's always best to uh, have more data available to uh, scientists and physicians in the field. Uh, and so uh, we always prefer when uh, manuscripts and data sets are available to, the, to, to, uh, to individuals to uh, review. For somebody, I'm a layman. I, I, I don't know what the, the process is. I don't follow it. So for the viewers out there who are not familiar with this, is it normal uh, for a company working on a vaccine to put out a press release saying, hey, this worked in chimpanzees. Hey, this worked on eight people. Is that a normal part of the process or normally do people, uh, do companies, uh, are they more cautious? I think it's very different. I think uh, uh, a lot of things are very different for COVID-19. And there is a uh, worldwide effort to try to develop a vaccine. I think that it is unusual, the amount of uh, interest and therefore exposure of uh, the COVID-19 vaccine field. Uh, but uh, the goal is to move the vaccines forward as quickly as possible, uh, but as was said earlier, without sacrificing safety and efficacy. And I think different companies choose different communication strategies. Some health experts are cautioning that, that overhyping uh, with an overly optimistic timetable for, for the vaccine is the equivalent of, quote, science by press release. Um, do you think there's a danger here of people thinking, OK, by December, January, we're going to have this? I saw the press release about the monkeys. I saw the press release about positive results in eight people. We're going to we're going to go get this. Is that unfair Is it that people criticize that as making people overly optimistic? Well, I think that's a very important point. I think it's very important not to overpromise. Uh, the potential of having a vaccine available by the end of this year or early 21, 2021 is really a theoretical possibility, but it depends on many things happening successfully because we are still in a very early stage of this process. Uh, so uh, we hope that everything will go perfectly the first time, but of course it might not. 
So we have to uh, communicate very clearly uh, that uh, the most optimistic time frame might be one thing. Uh, however, that is in no way guaranteed. And Dr. Brook, there, there are currently 10 vaccines in human clinical trials worldwide. Do you, do you assume most of them are going to get through a phase three study on humans and be mass produced even uh, if they're not proven yet? Well, the, the vaccine development process typically uh, is more like a pyramid. There's a lot of vaccines in the laboratory, a smaller number of vaccines in early phase clinical trials, and even a smaller number of vaccines in late phase clinical trials, and then even a smaller number of vaccines that ultimately uh, pass all those tests and can be mass produced. So it's important to have a number of vaccines uh, being developed now. Uh, to hopefully get uh, not just one, but ideally several vaccines that ultimately make it for licensure. So I don't expect that all the vaccines that are being tested now will make it into a phase three trial, but hopefully several will be. All right, hopefully. Dr. Dan Baruch, thank you so much. Appreciate your (laughs) your time today. Coming up ahead, two of the biggest tourist attractions in the United States now submitting plans to reopen what the futures of Disney and SeaWorld will look like ahead. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 